Imagine just trying to fit in, be a part of the group, and taking drugs at age eight. The All Eyes on Me podcast is the true story of Vincent Lilly, his struggle with drugs, addiction, recovery, and onward to hope and health. Be ready to experience another world. Here's author Kevin Zadrill and Vincent Lilly. Hello, welcome back. My name is Kevin Zadrill, the host of this podcast, All Eyes on Me, based on the true life story of Vincent Lilly and uh, true story of addiction, recovery, and hope on his current book. And uh, we're going to continue on with our chat today and want to welcome you back, uh, Vincent. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. I, I thought it'd be uh, worthwhile today uh, to discuss in terms of incarceration and specifically for yourself. It was at uh, Stony Mountain Institute here in Manitoba. Um, and uh, for yourself, there were uh, three occasions uh, we discussed within your book um, when you were incarcerated. So I thought it would be um, relevant in terms of talking more about that. So in the book, it says February 2003, a month etched forever in my mind. This was to be my first stint in a federal prison and the day of transport from the remand center to Stony Mountain Institute was a totally surreal feeling. Your mind struggled to comprehend that it was really happening. It seemed more like a lingering intense dream from the night before, except it wasn't a dream. It was very real. Can you kind of walk us through that day when you're at the remand center and being prepared to have that transport? I think it was probably pretty, like, even when I try and think about it now, it's kind of hard to remember, but I guess the feeling of what it felt like was, will probably always stay, but it was definitely a feeling of fear and uncertainty, right? Cause you never know. I, I had no idea what to expect when I got there. And obviously I've heard, I heard stories from people about what it would be like when you go there. And uh, so, yeah, I was definitely scared uh, being transported over there. And then you get to the big gate and once you get to the big gate, when you're, you're heading in is basically when reality kind of sets in and realize where you are and you just never know what the possibilities are about being there. Yeah. That's, that's something that you discuss in the book, just pulling up in front of that gate. And for you, that was a realization this, this was happening. Um, this was now federal prison and you were going to be there. What, what was the first length of sentence? Um, the first one was 28 months. Okay. That though was your first entry to Stony Mountain. And in the book, it says that you had to go through the entry process for all inmates who are admitted in the prison for the first time. And this begins in the fish tank. Talk us a little bit about what a fish tank is and what that looked like for you. I find it funny that they actually, the institution actually calls it that also, because um, I'm pretty sure that the name came from inmates. Inmates had started it because when they say fish tank, they mean like, you know, it's like a, where the new, the new guys go. And so, yeah, that's basically what it was is that if you were new, you come into the institution, that's the first place you go. Um, that's where all the, where they have all the intake things for the inmates and they get them, uh, they teach them about what the, the rules and stuff that they'll, they'll have, be having to follow when they do enter into general population. And so, yeah, it's basically just all the new guys in one on one range living together. 
And that was about 90 days you spent there? Um, yeah, I think that's what the original plan is for most of them is to spend 90 days there, but uh, it can be a different, can be different for each inmate depending on the situation. So for you, you spent your time there getting uh, sort of acquainted in terms of the uh, expectations within the prison. And then before you got in general population. So in the book, you mentioned that it's a learning process too. Uh, you get in, you have to sort of learn the unspoken kind of codes and expectations. And one of the big challenges actually was during mealtime, just in terms of where to sit, what the sort of informal protocols were among the inmates. Yeah. Like you mean like in the dining room, you mean? Mm -hmm. That's right. Uh, yeah, that was a pretty interesting situation because, uh, it was, it's literally like out of the movies where it's like a big, huge dining hall, um, area where all the, all the inmates go to eat and, uh, they have the big food counter, um, all the plastic plexiglass to cover the thing and then all the workers behind the counter and then there's the big line where everybody has to line up. But um, in this dining hall, uh, I guess the gangs, I guess they had their own little seating setups in there. And so um, you, if you're new coming there, you, you didn't really know what the rules were. So I had seen, there had been quite a few incidents that I had seen between uh, uh, new inmates and and gangs. If you end up walking through the tables and trying to take a shortcut, um, you know, it was never a good idea because they don't like people walking through. So yeah, there was basically everywhere you went in the jail, there's all these little rules that you have to learn from people, you know, in order to just... Uh, make your stay there a little bit more quiet. So in the book, um, chapter 15, A New World Order, um, you mentioned that uh, time. It's something you have a lot of in prison. You said that, I found out that quickly, that boredom is immense. Every hour of your day is accounted for and dictated by the prison. A lot of monotony. How do you find that you pass time in, in prison? Because... As you say, the days are, are long and repetitive. Yeah. I think the best thing that you need to do is just try and get a, get into a good routine of doing things, right? And just like every certain time of the day, you have something that you do all the time. And then that way it just becomes, eventually it just becomes second nature. Once that time comes, you know what you're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. So they do have things like programming. Um, what would that look like for, for inmates during this, this programming period? Um, well, like they have, uh, in the institution, they have, um, I guess they have work hours. So work hours uh, consist of from 8, 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. And so those are the, the hours when the work and also the programs take place. So basically in the morning, they have breakfast at 7 o'clock in the morning and uh, and then uh, at 8 o'clock, then the inmates that have program or have work can go to their jobs or their programs and then basically just kind of like come and go in between with their breaks as the day goes on until 4.30 and then the day is kind of over. So in the book, you mentioned uh, that all these criminals do all days, hang around with time to think and talk. And it almost kind of breeds um, more of the same thinking. Um, and you mentioned here, it seems like 
so many guys go into their sentence with no thought of rehabilitation uh, and avoiding a return to prison or changing the behaviors that got them incarcerated to begin with. You know, yourself having been through that, what would be for those that kind of want to break that cycle? And I've spoken to people that have, um, you know, have family um, going to federal prison and they're fearful that this is going to become a lifelong pattern. Um, what are your thoughts in terms of suggestions that you could help that would maybe get them to avoid repeat returns? Um, well, I mean, as much as the, as the prison always tries to say that they're there to help when the inmates are released, uh, it was never really, it was never really, didn't seem to be the case whenever I was released. Like they would have sit, things set up as much while I was there, but as soon as I was to, to be released and got out on the street, the resources just weren't there for us. So I think for the inmates, they need to just uh, have that drive to, to want to change and they need to look into a lot of stuff for themselves before they get out and have those resources there when they get out because that's what it all boils down to is that when you get out on the street, you have to have change when you get out instead of getting out to the exact same thing that you're, that you're, you're always used to. That's a good point because in one of the chapters, you mentioned that when you were released after your first sentence, um, you were cycling right back in the same direction. And you said here in the book that when you left Stony Mountain, 16 months of your life were gone, uh, nothing, but it became nothing more than a distant memory. So, to me, that just sounds like it didn't do anything to kind of persuade you to change what you were doing. You just kind of fell back into that. So it kind of speaks to what you were just saying. People, places, things, and change environment and having those resources there. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to expect people to make change when, uh, when for so many years they do the same thing over and over again. And then they get released into the same environment it's hard for you to make change, even if you really want it to, you know what I mean? It's, you need to have those, uh, that little small period of time where you can have time to adjust in the community without those outside um, people trying to influence you to get back into things. So from your perspective, um, any specific things that would help someone coming out of prison immediately when they get in the community uh, to help them? with that change? I would definitely say for sure that it would, it would have to start with uh, some sort of addiction um, resources because obviously a lot of the people that are there are there because of that. Um, they're there for, you know, problems with alcohol or problems with drugs. Um, so I think that they would, they should probably look into that because then if they, if they look into like some meetings or some programming, they can get in touch with some people that are, that are uh that can that can guide them uh in the community and uh you know have a little bit more of an understanding of what they could do that'll better help them when they're in the community because when you get out like depending on how much time you do but when you get out it's like being shell-shocked so it's like you know you're you're kind of in a daze right and so it's really easy to to kind of just fall back into things and then later on, catch yourself, and then already it's too late. <laughs> and, and part of that, like you say, depending on how much time you do and depending on how you do your time, too. In the book, you mentioned about um, segregation. Um, 
in, in this, in, in particular in the book, in, intensive monitor range. Um, so for yourself, you said you had gone from having freedom during the day within your range to being locked down alone behind a solid metal door inside a 10 by six foot cell, 23 hours a day. What is that like when you have now even more confined freedom? What, where, what, how, where are your thoughts throughout the day? And you become more hypersensitive in terms of just the sounds around you. At this point, pretty much it becomes a mental game. And uh, clearly these individuals that are in these institutions are not there because they have the strongest of minds. And so, uh, you know, you're basically left there to face yourself in those times or basically 23 hours of lockdown and you get out for an hour for a shower or hour for the yard you choose. Um, basically it becomes a mental game and it's, it just begins to break you down. Right. It's definitely something that changes you forever because uh, yeah, I, I, that's why I find it funny about people when they talk about this quarantine out here in the community. And yeah, of course I do understand it is pretty severe for people who haven't been incarcerated um but when you're locked in like a little room and you can't go out for that those long periods of time and you're just left there with your thoughts like it's uh, it can get pretty pretty uh pretty messed up you know because you know it's all you're left with your thoughts and your imagination and so yeah it's uh and then you've got the other inmates that are around that don't help the situation they're screaming and banging and you know and just yelling stuff and just it's just it can get pretty ugly and even the time that you mentioned the one hour a day where you get out it's not like you're out you're if you take that shower you're still in a cage if you go outside the yard you're still in a cage describe that yeah yeah um obviously whenever you leave your cell you're handcuffed you're um but even when you go to the showers the showers are a little tiny like very small um shower area like a little tiny like you could almost touch the walls without even putting putting your arms out so it's like probably like I mean like a three by three um shower and then they they lock you in a cage like the cage is the cage goes over the front of it um for the shower and then if you go outside in in the yard for an hour um they're like dog kennels pretty much when they bring you out there they're like a bunch of cages that are put together that are boxes that are like uh, chain link fences. They're like uh, cages made out of chain link fences, kind of like. And so it's like a, a square, a box that they put you in of a chain link fence. And it's like being in a kennel pretty much. So all of them are attached. And then so it's like, it's like in jail when you see it on the movies, um, how they show it. And it's pretty, uh, it's, it's kind of intimidating. You know what I mean? Because everywhere you go, you're just being locked into a different cage. Very intense experience. And, and in the book, you mentioned that as you came through your, your final um, sentence, um, you had lost interest in doing time, locked up and sitting inside a cell for segregation. So it's an interesting point. You said you had lost interest in it. What was, what does that mean to you? And what did you do to look at it differently? I think it's like um, all these people who are incarcerated, they're all going through the same struggles in a sense. And uh, I think it's like what I said before, like God always keep introducing you to the same thing over and over again until you learn the lesson. 
a lot of these people, they just stay stuck. Uh, they, they're just not uh, willing to face themselves. I think that's what it comes down to. And then in the end is that you got to face yourself instead of uh, getting placed into an environment where you're so afraid of everything. Well, not like afraid, but yeah. So when you're so afraid of everything around you and you're trying to protect yourself from everything around you, not even stopping and realizing that it's not even about what's going on around you. It's about what's going on in, inside of you. And until you start to address those things that's, that are going on inside you, then pretty much you just keep staying, you stay stuck in the same cycle. And for me, uh, I had the right series of events to happen to me to, in order to allow me to see things more clearly and allow me to uh, start to face those things that were going on inside that ultimately are what got me to where I was. So essentially then, you you know, while you're, you're doing your time, and you're coming up for your release internally you could start doing the process to start that change occurring prior to your release so you're in a in a better headspace uh more prepared to uh, reintegrate back into the community yeah cuz i mean you got to understand it's it sucks like it really sucks and it's really hard to actually finally realize in the end of all of what you've been doing all of what you've been doing wasn't caused by anybody else, by your own doing, you know, it wasn't anybody else. Once you come to that realization and then you start to actually reflect on everything in that frame of mind, it's so much different than reflecting on things in that frame of mind where you're still blaming people. It's uh, a little bit easier to, to rationalize the things that you've done when you know you're stuck there blaming people or why the, why this and why that happened. But once you, you're left there to face yourself and realize that you're the, you're the cause of all the things that you brought you to where you're at in your life, it's a lot easier to, uh, to understand it. Once you just uh, admit, basically that's the first step is just admitting that you are the one that got you to where you are today. It's very powerful. In your opinion, um, what would be sort of the top three priorities when you're released into community that would help with that transition uh, if that was presented to, to someone uh, to make that more successful, to kind of help uh, guide you in the right direction? If there were, you know, one, two, three things that the most important um, to kind of give you that foundation of success. I think, like I said, the addiction part is uh, something that you definitely have to address because um, if you don't address that part, then it's going to mess with your thinking and your thought process. And you need to have a clear mind to to definitely be successful after being released from, uh, from jail or prison. So that's definitely one of the things you got to definitely deal with. But uh, one of the main things is, is the places where you, where, where you're going to be living is definitely a big thing because especially if you had some involvement with gangs and that, you know, like you can't be going back into the same environment. So I think that uh, your location is one of the big things you definitely have to, uh, you have to change what you were doing because obviously clearly what you were doing wasn't working. So, you know, you, it's like, the definition of insanity, you can't keep doing the same thing over and over again, expect different results. So your location is definitely one of the things you have to change. And um, I think just like 
the things that you that you do are definitely another thing that you want to change when you're out. You know, you want. I think a good thing is to start to 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 try and maintain your health. So I think for me, what I used to do is that's why I think another reason why I'm so committed to working out is I I would definitely always do that when I got out. I'd always make sure I had a gym membership and you know get into some sort of like even you can get into boxing or whatever you wanted to get into right um but that's something that uh staying physical can be good for your mental health right so um the stronger that your mind is the the more more chances it is that you'll be successful that's that's very very um wonderful in terms of that direction and and that's you know, before, you know, you start to even try to get the, the basic skills of uh, seeking employment, right? Because that's, that's a challenge in itself and doing up resumes and knowing how that all process works. Yeah. But I think the reason why I didn't mention that is because I, I find that that's a downfall for, that can be a downfall for inmates that are being released. Because uh, what happens is, uh, I've noticed it and seen it time and time again that when you get released from institution, the first thing people are saying is you need to get a job, you need to get a job, you need to get a job, you need to make money, right? But what's one of the things that uh, can be a huge trigger for people that have addiction problems is that when they get money, you know what I mean? They're just faced with this issue. Uh, it's in your face and then it becomes uh, a big problem. So uh, I think um, just like, pe- like people should know, um, uh, like they say, like I seen this thing where someone was saying they're, they're always coming out with these new phones and these new updates out in, 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 uh, in society, you know, so everybody has to have that new phone that comes out and they want to get that update, but nobody's doing the update on themselves, right? Like nobody wants to upgrade themselves. So like what you need to do is start working on yourself and focusing on that instead of, uh, like with the work and getting money and all this, obviously I understand you need money to live and stuff, but um, when you're, when you're faced with that stress to get to, to have to get a job, um, it just becomes a little bit, makes things a lot more harder for you, especially considering if you've done a lot of time, you know, it's for me when I got out and I was always told I need to get a job. I was, I was scared because I didn't know how to get a job. I never knew how to get a job. So, uh, and I never really liked working. Every time I worked, I had to have a labor job and I had to just, it was always just, it was never fun for me. So, yeah. That's really good points. Um, before we wrap up today, do you have any other messages uh, to add to what you're just describing in terms of that self-help, that self-awareness, um, activities that people can do or, search within themselves to, to kind of work in that, that, um, inner self. I think like I was saying, uh, a lot of people lose or they don't lose sight of it. They just don't even know about the fact that everybody's doing this work on, on the outside world. They're doing work on their outside self and not doing any work on the inside self. And I think that's the most important part that we all need to focus on is because, um, you can't give people something that you don't have. So, you know what I mean? Like you want to go through life helping people or doing good in life. If you don't love yourself or you're not going to do as good as you'd like to in life. So I think it's just need to do that, uh, that internal work. It's really tough. That's why a lot of people don't do it. 
but in the end, it's well worth it. Yeah, it is. And I think your point, like you say, you love yourself first is so paramount. And uh, we'll end off with one of your quotes in the book. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter how bad you have it, there is always hope. There definitely is. Thank you again, Vincent, for being with us today. I uh, really appreciate the the time and uh, the, the wisdom from your, your thoughts. And I know that it has a very uh, pronounced effect on our listeners. Um, it can help guide them through um, those times in their lives that they're, they're struggling with addictions and anything else that's going on in their lives. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you.